Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming Reverend Aurelia Davila Pratt. She is the lead pastor of Peace of Christ Church, a radically loving community in Round Rock, Texas. Named by Sojourners as one of the 10 Christian women shaping the church in 2022, Aurelia is also the author of A Brown Girl's Epiphany, Reclaim Your Intuition and Step Into Your Power, and is the co-host of the Nuance Tea Podcast. You can find her on Instagram at Reverend Rev Aurelia Joy, where she is reimagining faith and theology via spoken and written word. All right, welcome to the show. I'm here with Reverend Aurelia Davila Pratt. Thanks for being here. Anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Oh, um, I live in Central Texas. I'm from Louisiana. I have a husband, a six-year-old daughter, a dog. <laughs> um, yeah. Anything else I should say there? <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, share, if you would, kind of about your your spiritual journey, what it looked like for you, if there was a real beginning coming to the faith, what that looks like today, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I've always felt like, I mean, we're all spiritual beings in my opinion, but I've always mm-hmm. kind of been a person who was tuned into that from a young age and who was interested in the stuff of God and in, you know, spiritual practices and ways of being. So I actually grew up in the Catholic church. My parents um, were Catholic in my young, younger years. Um, I was baptized in the Catholic church and had my first communion and I was really shaped by that kind of mystical environment um, and the liturgy and just sort of, for me, it was sort of a beautiful kind of experience. Um, but mm-hmm. I grew up in rural North Louisiana where nobody was Catholic to point that um, we didn't even have church on Sundays. A priest from another parish would have to come over on Saturday evenings. And so we would either drive out of the town I lived in to go to church on Sunday or go on Saturday to mass. And um, Mm. because of that, I spent a lot of time in youth groups with my friends in the Baptist Mm -hmm. uh, tradition. And so um, I had this sort of foundational roots of kind of like a more mystical posture, but then what I actually ingested as a adolescent was sort of the, um, Southern Baptist kind of paradigm and way of looking at the Bible and God. Um, so that yeah. really, that really shaped me as well. And in college, I was super into the student ministry, into the, that world, that Baptist world. Um, and I ended up going to a seminary that's a kind of a moderate, I would say, Baptist seminary at Baylor. It's called Truett Um Mm-hmm. seminary yeah. and funny enough that that space kind of was the 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 place where I started to evolve theologically because at, at least at the time mm-hmm. my experience mm-hmm. there they didn't really tell you what to believe they just gave you the tools to kind of 
you know, do that work. Hmm. Um, and so it really was a space where I evolved a lot theologically, got out of seminary, started a church with a group of people 10 years ago. I was, I'm still there now. Um, and really through that faith community, we've evolved together. And I, I would say we sort of, we sort of identify for lack of a better word in the progressive Christian, um, Mm-hmm. tradition at this point. Um, but there, there are, I don't like to speak for people. Everyone has their own <laughs> way of sure. identifying. So that's sort of my journey in a nutshell though. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, what's, what's a spiritual practice you find meaningful or might recommend others? You know, I'm really big on, um, people doing their own work. So for me, what resonates for me is going to be um, ritual, ritual practices like um, using, you know, that engage my senses. I love to, I have an altar space here in my office and I love to, to sit in silence. I love to do um, ancient practices like Lectio Divina or Visio Divina. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, chime, uh, a singing bowl that uh, incense. I like to, I like to, I collect iconography as well and it's all over my, um, office here to my right. But, um, basically I like to be able to see and smell and feel and, and kind of put myself in this space of engaging divine presence. And of course I love to journal and read and, um, engage nature. And I I really just think I, I probably have a little bit of a mystic's heart. (laughs) Yeah. Can I ask you on the spot here, if you can share a little bit, a little bit about iconography, um, because again, um, in the Protestant tradition, again, oh, right. there's yeah. not a fan of iconography. Um, and I was listening to something recently talking about it. It was quite fascinating to hear about it. Uh, share if you would, if if I can put you on the spot from your perspective, what's meaningful about it. Um, and, you know, it's just such a countercultural to the quote unquote, the traditional uh, Protestant perspective. Yeah. Well, I love iconography um, because of it. It does have such a rich um, history in the, in the Greek Orthodox uh, tradition or in the Orthodox uh, Eastern Orthodox Mm -hmm. tradition. Um, And I guess the reason I just said Greek there is because I was on a trip to Greece when I visited um, a a place that made icons out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but Hmm. they're really, I think they're well known and, and have had their icons sent out. And I I purchased an icon there. Um, and from that period on, I found that anytime I would go on any trip or have any significant spiritual moment, I would purchase, um, an icon, but Hmm. it was there in that little shop where the lady sat us down and she talked, she told us the story like every icon basically represents a story usually in Mm -hmm. the Bible, but sometimes about, you know, a saint or, or a, a a holy kind of person in, in his, in church history. Um, but if you look at icons that tell Bible stories, it's truly like, I am not even equipped to explain how beautiful it is to engage the icon every single layer um, of the icon from the actual imagery to the people represented to the colors um, and to the symbols included to even if you get like a true icon um, to even the materials used are representing 
a deeper spiritual meaning. Um, and mm. they're telling a full story. So that particular, my first icon I ever bought was um, of the resurrection. And mm. it, it, the, every single piece of it tells the story of the resurrection. So when yeah. I'm sitting in my little altar space that I've created and I could have a whole conversation on ritual, but, um, and I'm looking at these icons, I'm not just staring at an image. I am engaging the stories of my faith tradition. Um, mm. And I think it just helps me because I can, we, we can't really see God. We can't know for sure what's true about God, but sometimes these, these acts that connects us, connect us to our tradition and connect us to our senses at the same time can really help um, just encourage and increase our faith, or at least that's how I feel about it. So that's, that's why I like icons. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I find it so interesting because, again, in traditional mainline or or really American Protestant Christianity, broadly speaking, it's very much a as I say, like there's there's two sacraments, so to speak, in like most American churches. It's like music, worship, and the sermon, and like those are the those are the two ways that, the, as you say, the stories of faith are proclaimed. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about how the the icons are meant to sh- tell the story. And mm-hmm. then I'm thinking back in church history, um, hmm. you know, I have not had the privilege of seeing these churches, but I've, I, I, I've heard and seen pictures, obviously, of of these classic cathedrals that tell the story and the architecture and then the paintings and the the stained glass, I imagine. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's something to be said about beauty and how it connects Mm. us to God. And of course, everything has been misused. Beauty and the wealth behind all of that and cathedrals or whatever. But but you can't really go to a church that has any amount of history that hasn't misused something. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not not like any one tradition has gotten it right, um, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, so we try to, we try to, you know, let go of what is harmful and move into healthy theologies and images of God. And it's okay sometimes to, to take some things with us on that journey. Well, thanks for sharing that, or thanks for engaging on that with me. Uh, I want to talk to Aurelia about, uh, I encountered her work recently and she suggested an article she had written for Progressing Spirit, if I understand, if I remember correctly, talking about being space makers. And as a as a church planter, a pastor of a sounds like a small church, uh, trying to make it work here, especially after COVID, I thought it'd be a great conversation. Um, so maybe share a little bit more, kind of about for, maybe just for my own curiosity, share a little bit more, kind of about the story of the church getting started, what it looks like today as we jump into this conversation. I'm going to try to be concise, especially having been a part of it from the beginning. <laughs> it can be hard. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll say that we started as a more traditional um, church plant within our d- traditional denomination, which we are rooted in the Baptist tradition. Mm-hmm. So Baptist the history of Baptists are like, you know, local autonomy of right. each church. And so any church you go to could look totally different in how they do things because while there are 
you know, affiliations and, and conventions and this and that, like th- there's not usually governing um, right. laws around how all the churches are going to operate. So we started in the, our, through our local um, Baptist association because that association was tasked with starting churches and they wanted to start a quote, like moderate church in the, in the area we're in, you know, central Texas. And so there's a lot of Baptist churches and, um, they wanted a church that specifically affirmed women in ministry because there wasn't one in the whole County. And I live in the County I live in is the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing counties in the country and has been for all 10 years that I've lived here. Um, so it's Mm. huge. Um, so at yeah. 10 years ago, there wasn't, there weren't, there was not a Baptist church that had women pastors in the whole County. Um, and huh. so they wanted to start that. Um, but at the end of the day, that, that organization is, is just still like pretty conservative theologically. So right. we, we, while we kind of got going with them, we never really took off with them because pretty early on, I think we all realized this isn't going to work. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just so amazed because, you know, the group that agreed that we wanted to see this happen, we just continued on and, um, kind of did it on our own and, um, about halfway in. So I was, me and another guy started the church together as the two pastors. He was the lead pastor. I was more of an associate role. Um, about halfway through he, uh, left, he took another job and I <clears throat> stepped into his role. So I've been the lead pastor for about half of that church history. Um, so like five years. And um, we, right before he left, we had started to really evolve as a community and move clo- mm-hmm. more into our identity of who we kind of wanted to be. Um, and we've been doing that ever since. Some of the things that mark our community is that we had sort of gone through the process of deconstruction um, Mm -hmm. together as a community. And so that was an experience we all had together and then figuring out who we are kind of now being more situated in a, in the progressive tradition for the last six years, Um, exploring that together. And um, we're just, we're kind of marked by a, a collaborative nature um, non-hierarchical. I don't preach every week. We have a, you know, a rotation. We try to share voices and, um, we just do a lot of sharing and, and, and strategy and visioning and, and, and how we kind of do everything. And we call ourselves a unicorn church because so many people are from all different traditions. We have a lot of people that Mm -hmm. wouldn't even call themselves a Christian. Um, and so, Mm -hmm. While we do have Baptist roots, I would say probably the, the the large majority of the people that attend would not, you know, identify as a as a Baptist yeah. in, in their in their tradition. So, well, it sounds like if I'm hearing correctly, and I'm going to tie this into your article here, what you're about there at the church and what you've written about here is really about space making. If I can make the connection, and one of the things that in this article you you, you kind of talk through uh, ways of space making in, I think here there's, you have six things. So I want to talk through some of these and hear some more of your responses. Um, the first thing you say is that providing space for spirit movement does not involve inheriting traditions without asking questions. So as you, as you told the story, you, you literally gave an example of 
your church inheriting traditions, Baptist traditions? And it sounds like you asked some questions. Uh, is there anything more you want to share that, to illustrate that point? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, something I've learned in this 10 years of planting a church and allowing the church to kind of become who it's going to become um, and hold that lightly because we're always evolving and changing. Um, the a mantra that our staff has kind of used is um, notice the energy and go there. And mm. and I really think, you know, it's when I say energy in this context, I'm really speaking about spirit. I believe that spirit is moving mm-hmm. and at work and that it's our job to pay attention. And I think that sometimes we get really um, weighted down by what we've always done. We're so busy holding on to what we've always done that we're not really spending time paying attention to where the energy actually is right now in the present moment for our community. Um, And we've made decisions based on being true to that, that I'm really proud of. We've cut Sunday school for three years and then the energy was there and we brought it back called it, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we call it something else, but like, you know, right. And, um, Oh, one thing that we did that was, that's pretty huge is that, and this was before the pandemic, um, we stopped having church on the first Sundays. Mm -hmm. Um, we had, we, we just felt like the energy was there for us to have this intentional break for our community being so small and, it was a big decision because you don't do that. You have church on right. Sundays. <laughs> it right. was really, really a big decision, but the community trusted us. And it's now a very beloved um, tradition, but we hold every tradition that we have lightly as we try to pay, make space for spirit movement in our community. Um, and I will say we, we are having church this Sunday for Advent and we have um, church like last April. Easter was on a first Sunday. So we had church, mm-hmm. but like most first Sundays <laughs> we don't. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a, I've seen examples of church churches doing something similar. And I think it's a really good idea uh, just based on, you know, again, depending on context realities of modern families and people are busy and have things. Mm-hmm. And again, like you said, small staff, like a small staff, the production of Sunday morning yeah. is exhausting. So, um, totally. but you, <laughs> and it is so you a mentioned production. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned going towards, or at least as I wrote it down here, going towards the energy or spirit. Um, and I, I think it kind of leads into the second point you, you say providing space for real critique. Um, and this quote here, unfortunately, money and church politics could be the biggest uphill battle we face. So as you're trying to head towards that energy and spirit, the realities are, at least in my experience, that money and politics can be the biggest polit- excuse me, the biggest uphill battles we face. How what are some of the ways that you've uh allowed for real critique and, and dealt with some of those challenges? Um I'm well, first of all, there's a lot of privilege here in being a church plant. We don't have inherited yeah. loads and baggage and traditions that, you know, are decades or even centuries old. And so I have respect for how difficult this can be. Um, We also don't have a building. So 
while we do have a lot of stressors that come with our limited resources, we're not mm-hmm. tied down to a, a building that we're trying to care for and a, and a payroll that's really bloated and, and things like that. Um, but for early on in our church, when we were set up in a more traditional framework, that attracted um, people who don't have the healthiest um, ways of engaging church. And then those people would step into leadership. And that's what I mean when I say politics. Then then those of us on staff are suddenly bound to people's desires that may not be always rooted in healthy theology or he- even just healthy relational dynamics. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you always have to think about who's giving and what decisions might affect that. And and so right. I guess what I'm saying is part of our job as space makers is to be resilient enough and committed enough to our space making that we are actually creating space for real critique so that we can operate mm. authentically as a community because we're, it's not healthy if it's not authentic. Um, so what happened was we, we, we continued to chisel at being our most authentic selves and um, you know, people who, who weren't drawn to that authenticity and to that good health, they just ended up leaving. And mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, now the bulk of our community is, is bought in to right. this. This is a part of our culture to critique the church. We critique the church because we love it. Um, we critique it because we want the best for it. And now this is a part of our culture. So if you're coming in as a visitor and you don't like it, you're just probably not going to visit again. Um, mm-hmm. So we've gotten to a place where it's just a part of who we are. But I also recognize that it can be very hard to get there. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, I think that's one of the challenges of, of new churches. A, it gives you like a lot of freedom from inherited tradition, but also like people do see it as a way to like, Hey, I've been unhappy at all these other churches. Here's my opportunity to like, whether, you know, flex my muscles or get my yeah. opinion. Right. If, if, am I understanding mm-hmm. correctly? <laughs> that does happen or that, that did happen. It did. Yeah. And it was, it was um, no fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that does risk. That is a risk in a new church for sure. And I would say, because we are so incredibly collaborative, mm-hmm. um, it that is another thing that has repelled people who want that kind of space because they they get to into our community and they realize no one is taking up that kind of space. There is no, um, you know, space for that <laughs> mm-hmm. in the space we're creating. There's only space for collaboration and working together. Let me ask a follow-up question there, because I've often seen in churches that have, if I'm interpreting or understanding correctly, a more um, congregational polity, so to speak, to get into the weeds here a little bit, that dominant voices can, even in a quote-unquote congregational polity, can exert an outsized influence just because of their personality or giving. I'm curious, like, what are some things that y'all have done to really preserve that kind of collaborative, uh, that collaborative value, and then like not letting anyone have an, like an outsized voice, 
oversized voice. Yeah. Um, we, <clears throat> that's a good question. I'll say that we, like one of the main things we do is that we never have the same person speaking. Um, so we're always rotating on preachers mm-hmm. and, you know, I, we try not to make the sermon the high point, but it just is received that way traditionally right. so easily. So right. I think it, it makes such a huge deal, a huge difference that it's not a part of our culture for there to be one predominant voice in that space. Yeah. Cause that's the space people are entering into most often the Sunday right. gathering. So, you know, every team that we have, that's a space. And mm-hmm. that space has a dynamic um, and a culture to it. Mm-hmm. So the Sunday morning space, you know, we 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 have the sermon moment that's always shared, like different every week. But then we also have a lot of participation from the congregation. All, every element is led by someone different. And every week we are intentional to not ask the same person, you know, the same people again the next week. So there's just this constant collaborative mm-hmm. um image and and it is real that's being put out in that space. Um, but then even our leadership team, you know, it's pretty, we've probably have like seven or eight people on that team and we don't make any decisions without, you know, that collaboration moment between that team. And we have, um, so I would say the way our leadership is structured is very collaborative as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I just think that, you know, there's just no space ever in any space we create where there's one person who has the floor more than anyone else. We may have mm. a a leader who is facilitating forward movement, but mm-hmm. it, every space we create, we try to create create it intentionally um, in a way that we we think is non hierarchical, and that is hard to do because it takes longer <laughs> for stuff to yeah. get done. Um, and you still do need a leader to help move things along. So it's definitely us living in this, um, this space that does feel like the road less traveled and does feel like the harder way. Um, we just try to one step at a time move in that, in that direction. Yeah. Well, I imagine this is a appropriate observation or fair observation that it really speaks to, if I can say this to your leadership, to to create that kind of space because I'm a believer that culture is very much shaped by leaders. Um, so as a lead pastor, it sounds like you've done a great job about creating that kind of culture, um, which more churches could do very well to replicate. Um, Thank you. I think some of it has to do with the fact that I didn't really plan to be doing this kind of work. <laughs> so it's not, I don't really have the personality <laughs> to sure. to naturally sure. have done chosen to do this. Um, and so I think that I like to be in collaboration. <laughs> well, let me ask you a couple more questions here. Um, I feel like I have so many more questions I want to ask you and we're running <laughs> already halfway through here. <laughs> okay. um, let's go to this question if I can. One of the things you you write is about providing space for intuition. And the quote that stood out to me is that providing space will inevitably include deconstruction. And then kind of the, the quote continues here. Our goal is not to keep people in the fold. So I'm going to talk real practical here. I've been in new church. I've been in small church. 
And you talked about earlier the challenges of, of budgets and of critical mass, or at least as I heard it. That's a real challenge, whether, especially now for, for almost all church leaders. Um, you, you, you spoke earlier about willingness to let people go. Um, talk more about how, you know, what that looks like, that intuition space. And then the real practicality of being okay with letting people go. Yeah, it has a lot of layers. Sometimes it is that we just weren't the church for that person. And mm-hmm. so what that mean, what letting go means is that we are choosing to stay true to the, tr- the community's authenticity by right. not bending the truth of, right. of, of just who this community is for any right. particular person. Um, but then there's also the problem of, And it does feel like a problem to me because we're a more progressive community. We have, you know, we have provided a space for people who now feel liberated from harmful religion, from um, religion that centers shame and guilt and and Mm -hmm. fear. We don't do that. We will not do that. We will not, you know, try to hold people in that way. And um, sometimes people come to our community, they get liberated and then they're like, all right, I'm liberated. I'm out. <laughs> like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm liberated. I, I feel free. I don't even need a faith community. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, what I want to do is, is say, we need to just let people go. If they're going to go, we mm. need to just let them go. Yeah. Um, but as a leader, I also need to, um, spend time asking myself, did I create the support that they needed beyond deconstruction? Um, mm. This is not just a, a revolving door where we, you know, get people out of yeah, harmful help, help situations. Help people's religious trauma. Yeah. Right. This is an actual faith community that, you know, exists for the thriving for the continued thriving of ourselves and for our kids, we want, you know, Mm -hmm. and for that to exist, we need the community to be invested and to be a part and to contribute. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was just in staff meeting right before this and we were saying um, how, how do we create spaces that, that um, encourage the people in our community to move away from consuming and into contributing um, because mm-hmm. that mindset is an old mindset that we don't even want. Right. We don't want to be living in that consumer mindset that so much of the world is living in. We want to be more thoughtful than that. And um, so, yes, we, we let people go. We don't bend over backwards and spend all our energy trying to do whatever it takes to keep people from leaving. Um, we let them go. And at the same time, we we take our energy and we put it into creating spaces where we can provide good support for people to land so that mm-hmm. they don't, so that they see the value in the community um, and don't, don't want to go, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I have learned the hard way that I ha- that in the past I haven't offered the best support in terms of spaces for people to engage on the other side of deconstruction. So that's what we tend to um in, in our community right now. That's really fabulous observations there. Cause I mean, a like chasing people like never works, you know, almost 
I shouldn't say never, but it seems like most of the time it does not work. And then B, like I love what you're saying about like not just being about deconstructing, but helping folks reconstruct something. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the last thing here I'll ask you about, and you've, you've spoken to it uh, throughout this conversation. So maybe, maybe share some practical things. Um, you talk about the importance of providing space for other voices and you, and you write that our job isn't just to, just to do all the talking. So really practical here. Many churches across the nation are facing budget challenges and clergy are being forced to think about bivocationality and, and the biggest, the biggest time chunk for many pastors and church leaders is, is writing the sermon. Um, so there's a real, there's a real practical win about incorporating other voices. So I'm just kind of curious, like what, how does that look like for you about finding folks um, training and, and elevating them and then continuing with that process? Yeah. um, We are, so all of our staff are multivocational. None of us are full time. Um, So we've had to be creative in how, stuff gets done. Right. And that includes preaching. Um, you know, we could, we could afford to have like one full-time pastor and maybe like a part-time pastor, which is typical. Um, Mm -hmm. but we found ourselves in this beautiful place of having enough leaders, incredible pastoral leaders and preachers who just want to be a part and are willing to just take a little bit and then supplement with other, other gigs and and Mm -hmm. things like that. So that's how we all are. Um, so for us, we have a a pool to draw from in our community of, of clergy. We just have people who are ordained. You don't have to be ordained to preach in our church, but we just have ordained folks who are great, um, preachers. And so they're in our preaching rotation and we, we move funds around so that we can pay them for when they preach. Cause we really, mm. we really value yeah. paying people for that. We recognize how much time it takes. Yeah. Um, so we, we, I, you know, I could be paid more and I probably, it would probably be helpful for me, but then I would need to be preaching more because we wouldn't be able to afford right. to pay someone else. A, I don't want to preach more. <laughs> um, Cause I like <laughs> hearing from other voices um, but B, like you said, it takes so much time to write sermons. It takes up, mm-hmm. it would take up the bulk of the extra time I was paid for. And then I'm I'm trying to do meaningful space making and I can't do it if I'm, if I'm focusing on the sermon moment. Um, so for me, I feel like we need to create communities that, um, that, that know how to put the sermon moment in its place it should mm. be helpful. It should be the sermon moment should be helpful, not integral. <laughs> it should mm-hmm. be helpful, not, you know, the shining star of the yeah. entire faith community. Um, and so we don't need to have like the best, greatest sermons and the best, greatest preachers. We just need to have helpful sermons and helpful preachers. And we need to spend more time space making. <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Um, and when we do make meaningful space making work happen, um, then we create communities who understand 
the sermon's place and all of that. And that is not, you know, the only thing. It's a, it's an element that can help people on their journeys from week to week, but it should absolutely not be <laughs> the main yeah. primary source of their spiritual nourishment. <laughs> yeah. The thing I love about what you're saying is, again, I, I'm connecting it back to the, the beginning of our conversation, talking about iconography and different um, means of means of grace. And again, I think of the word sacrament, which again, you know, I grew up Baptist. It's not really our, we don't call things sacraments. We'd call things ordinances. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, thinking about like how you said like the sermon moment in its place, like basically you're saying like the sermon moment isn't the only way the congregation can receive grace. If I can, if I can tie those things together. So it's really, really, really fascinating and intriguing kind of how you, in this space making, you're basically saying, as I understand it, like, hey, there's other ways for the congregation to receive grace. Yeah. Yeah. I am concerned with people's inner landscape. And I think, I think what the sermon is doing is, is tending to that. It's tending to one's inner landscape. It's, it's mm-hmm. giving them something to chew on. It's, it's spirit. Like I said, spiritual nourishment, it's, um, it's formational. And so, yes, that is important. Um, but what is so important to me is that people know how to tend to their own inner landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the most important thing to me that I try to talk to embody and and live out in my community is that you actually don't need a leader or a blueprint or um to show you what to do you actually already know what to do you just need like some help and support in getting mm-hmm. tuned into tending to your own inner landscape and the sermon moment is a part of that but there's so much more that can and should be happening in a faith community to help people get equipped to do that. Um, and, and also the faith community should be very reciprocal. Like everybody should be, you know, sharing and receiving and, and kind of being enriched from Mm -hmm. that. It shouldn't just be again, like this consumption opportunity for some and while others just burn out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is fabulous. I, uh, I'm regretting here. We're running out of time here. So it's okay. um, (laughs) Let's take a break. Man, I should write a book on space making. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Reverend Aurelia Davila Pratt. And uh, I have some closing questions. You can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what might that day look like? What would you want to do? Kind of thing. <laughs> I really don't want to be Pope for the day. I'm like, I don't want that. <laughs> okay. um, but I, if I had to pick something to do, I think it would just be to affirm the the lives and Imago Day and dignity of the LGBTQ community. That'd be a good day. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. This was an easy one because I just recently read um, uh, the newest translation of Practice of the Presence of God 
by Carmen Acevedo Butcher. She Hmm. put out a new translation and it is beautiful. It's an inclusive translation, but she talks all about how she went about making her choices. It just guides you through the letters. And anyway, now I'm just in love with Brother Lawrence and I would wish that I could talk to him and have a conversation with him, ask him some questions. And also he, I mean, he seemed in some ways perfect, but he also seemed really bogged down by a lot of anxieties. And Mm. I'm just curious what his struggles were. I mean, I know some of them from his story, but yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing that. Um, What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? I hope it remembers that there was a movement toward improvement. (laughs) I didn't mean Mm. crime there, but um, I know it can feel very overwhelming and it's especially feels very divisive. I mean, it's, there's always been some division, but like the division has gotten so bad that we're spending time, like literally trying to get people to dehumanize others and to dehumanize others beliefs. And it's Mm -hmm. just gotten so overwhelming that it almost feels like more terrible than ever. But when I really Mm. step back and look at the arc of history, I really feel like this can, this is good. This is systems are dying and, and people are, you know, sharing prophetic words about what's happening. And, and I hope that history shows that, you know, good things were happening and that it was a movement toward, you know, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. What do you hope then? What do you hope for the future of Christianity? Uh, What I hope is that, you know, Christianity can move toward a healthier image of God so that people can see that healthy image of God within themselves. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh healthier. Writing that down here. Yeah. Uh, my last podcast, it just as we're recording this came out with Jonathan Foster. It's one of the things he talked about in his book, how most Christians, if I remember the quote, something like believe shamefulness about themselves because they think God yeah. feels shameful about them and such good stuff. Um all right. Well, uh, speaking of books and uh, stuff, how can people connect with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm most I'm most often on Instagram at Rev Aurelia Joy. Um, I'm also on Twitter with that same handle, but I really don't get on Twitter. Um, but I, I on Instagram, I'm 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 writing and sharing poetry and reimagining faith. Um, and I did just put out a book called A Brown Girl's Epiphany. And whenever someone who's like the like the, theology interested kind of person asks me mm-hmm. what it's about, I say it's a book about Imago Dei. Um, mm-hmm. But hopefully in a few years, I could say that to anyone and they would know what I meant. Um, but it's a book about Imago Dei and it's a canon of all of my personal beliefs locked in time for a season <laughs> and um, it has a little bit of my story in there as well. So that's available anywhere on, you can also listen to it on audible. I'm reading it. Um, so yeah. 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 I've read the book would recommend it. Um, and then you have a podcast, right? 
I have a podcast. We're kind of on hi- hiatus right now, but okay. we do have one season out. It's called Nuance Tea Podcast. And we just recently got our LLC and we're kind of laying some groundwork. Um, but yeah, that's a, another clergy friend of mine that we kind of explore topics that aren't necessarily talked about in church. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, um, really recommend uh, connecting. We'll make sure to have show notes uh, links in the show notes for all your stuff. Really recommend for our listeners connecting um, with Aurelia uh, on her different channels. But uh, really appreciate your time and conversation. I always leave folks with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.